Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 38, Going Off the Trail with Jane Olcock-White. In this episode, we speak with Jane about how she grew up with a botanist in the backyard, about helping folks connect with nature, even if they didn't grow up with a botanist in the backyard. We talk about herbal cakes, being a park ranger, and going off the trail. If you like this podcast and want to see it succeed, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash plantcunning. You can share it with your friends who you think might enjoy it. And you can rate and review us on iTunes, which really does help. Okay. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Okay, today we are very excited to have on the show a Vancouver Island-based herbalist, holistic nutrition practitioner, and educator, and proprietor of Champagne Hill Botanicals, Jane Alcock-White. Hi, Jane. Hi there. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Absolutely. So we do have a traditional first question that we tend to ask on the podcast, and it is what brought you to the plant path? Oh, you know, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a long question. I think everybody has a different journey and it tends to meander a lot of the time. So for me, it definitely was a meandering path. But it did start with my childhood, really. I, my, you know, my parents aren't herbalists or anything like that, but I've always lived in the country and I've had nature sort of at my fingertips. So for me, it really stems from just a deep sense of belonging in wild spaces that has encouraged me to sort of delve deeper into what that actually means for me and how I can sort of bring that feeling that I have to other people. So I really work from a place that's, I guess, deeply rooted, I would say, like within myself and my connection to not only the place that I am from, but other places. Because even though I feel really strongly connected to the place that I live in, I can feel that same feeling in other places. You know, if I travel somewhere, Mm -hmm. I can feel the same feeling in say different mountains or by different rivers. So that's where my plant path really started, I think. And it's just sort of evolved out of that place. Cool. So more than just like a biophilia that was, that came in when you were a young child, there's more, more just a connection to like the place. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a connection to the place, but it's, it's hard to explain because it's even more than that for me. And it's, I guess it's a connection to nature as a whole. Like it's a relationship with the earth almost Mm -hmm. that I can feel like when I was talking about that deeply rooted feeling, it's a feeling that you get inside that's really hard to explain to people I mean emotions are never hard are always hard to put into words and this is the same kind of thing where it's a sense rather than 
oh, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's like a felt sense rather than something you can put on paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And those are, those subjective states are notoriously hard to communicate in words. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, like- I think a lot of our listeners um, will understand what you're saying. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I think so too, because it's kind of like trying to explain some things that are really esoteric to other people, you know, like maybe how flower essences work on a, on a vibrational level. <laughs> it's that type of thing that, you know, there is a science behind it, but it's more than just science. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you were raised in the country and you had access to wild spaces. Uh, so how did that translate to uh, your adult life? Well, you know, I guess I spent a lot of my adult life trying to do what I thought I should do. Um, you yeah. know, trying to, <laughs> trying to do what, you know, my family felt that I should do and trying to get a good job and, you know, all that type of thing. But I was also trying to always incorporate what I loved, which was, you know, the natural world. So I spent a lot of time working with environmental type organizations. And, you know, I worked for the government for a number of years, but it was always doing official work for other people. So I sort of did an about face and just decided to go right back to where I came from, which was to work more directly with the plants. And that's what encouraged me to first become a registered holistic nutritionist, which is what they're called in Canada. I think that in the States is like a nutritional therapy practitioner because health has always been an interest of mine. Yeah. Um, And I've incorporated herbalism into that because I think those two really complement each other so well, understanding how the body works on like an anatomical and physiological level And then understanding how we can use plants and nature to support ourselves. So I've twisted my sort of environmental training into something a bit more alternative, but that actually sort of resonates with me more. So what does it mean to be a holistic nutrition practitioner? What is that? What do you do? Well, I really just meet people where they are at. So it's different for every person. Um, So, you know, a lot of people think that they just need to change their diet or to go on a diet. And that, you know, is definitely part of it. I mean, diets these days are kind of a far stretch from what they maybe should be. Yeah. Um, but I don't force people to do anything. So if somebody comes to me and, you know, maybe they're having hormonal issues, they're, they're not sleeping well, or they're having chronic headaches, or they've got, you know, gut problems, it really just depends. But that's the type of thing I do, um, which is similar to what a herbalist does too. So I do like a full intake with these people and you know, get a sense of what their lifestyle has been like, what it is now, what foods they're eating, what foods they like, and figure out what their main issues are, and then try to support them through providing them nutritional guidelines, 
and, you know, lifestyle changes. And then for me, I incorporate different herbal components as well, which could be a personalized formula or something like that, or a tea blend, or it could just be a homework assignment, you know, go outside for 15 minutes every day and sit and just feel the wind on your face, something like that. Yeah. Doctors have never prescribed that to me. (laughs) No, (laughs) (laughs) but I can see how it's very helpful. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So you're, you're seeing the person as a whole and, you know, you're incorporating the diet, the lifestyle and the herbs, which really all are very complimentary. Yeah, that's right. And in a way that's comfortable for people because change is never comfortable and it takes people a lot to actually decide that, okay, I think I need to work with this person because I've tried my regular doctor and maybe I've tried an acupuncturist and, you know, then I've made it this far and it's uncomfortable and it can be scary. So for some people, it's just teaching them how to go grocery grocery shopping or relabel, you know, it really depends on the person. So basically you help people change their habits in regards to their health. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Yes. And it seems like habits are like, in my way of seeing things are kind of the foundation of your life, you know, like, in a way, that's what karma is. It's like your habits. And they're so hard to change. (laughs) That's right. Because those are the things that we've been brought up with. I mean, that's why dietary changes are so hard for people, because They just cook the food they know how to cook, which is what maybe their parents cook for them and their parents' parents cook for them. And it just goes back and back. And so it's not necessarily that they aren't willing to try something new, but they just don't know how to do it. Yeah, for sure. And it's, yeah, it's really nice to have someone to be your guide and to be your like champion and cheerleader along that process. Cause like you said, change is scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's like you're just there to give accountability and cheerleading and encouragement. Right, for sure. How did you learn about herbs? Um, well, again, that started, I think, long ago because my, even though I said my parents aren't into herbs specifically, but they're both really great gardeners. My mom has the most awesome garden. It's huge. And so I've just always been, you know, I remember when I was really little, I don't even know how old I had my own garden bed. And I remember sitting in the middle of it and like eating rhubarb raw and just enjoying (laughs) the taste that that gives you like a little bit of a shiver. It's sweet, but it's sour. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had somebody who lived in a cabin on our property and she was a botanist. And I think she was probably my first plant mentor. Mm. She just was so fascinating. And, you know, she had on the dashboard of her truck piles of lichens and mushrooms and feathers. And I learned so much from this person (laughs) about about meadows and wildflowers. Um, And so even though I didn't, you know, officially take any courses until much later in my life it was just always a curiosity so I've always had plant books Mm -hmm. I've always read plant books they've always been in my backpack when I've been traveling and 
Yeah, it's just a natural curiosity of mine that's evolved over time, I suppose. Cool. What a, what a great resource for a kid is a botanist in their backyard <laughs> and a huge yeah, garden. I know. I feel, uh, yeah. And she's, she introduced me to so many other resources too. There's a person out here where I live named Nancy Turner, who maybe even you've heard of, but she's an ethnobotanist mm. and has done some amazing work with First Nations peoples out in my area on the coast in the interior of British Columbia. Mm. And I've gone on plant walks with her and I met her through this botanist friend of my parents. Um, so I've just always had these great teachers around me. And uh, who are some of your other herbal teachers or mentors that have influenced you? Um, well, I'm in two courses currently. They're one of those online ones that never end, which is amazing when people can do that for you. But Cami McBride, um, mm -hmm. she does wonderful work with oils. So herbal infused body oils, that's her main thing, but she does teas and she's got a book. Um, geez, I can't remember what it's called right now, but she makes amazing recipes like cordials and vinegars and honeys and yeah. her sort of angle is kitchen herbalism, like how you can really incorporate herbs into your everyday life, which I love because that's what I try to do. Yeah, we did and, an interview with her. She's amazing. Oh, yes. She's such a wonderful, easy to connect with person. And she's very practical in how she approaches yeah, her I think, things. Yeah, her book is the, the Herbal Kitchen, right? That's right. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Um, that's a great book. And it's so fun to... Yeah, you know, keep herbs on your table. So I love her work and I'm in her program, which is one of those lifelong programs. So the resource is always there. And then the other is the School of Evolutionary Herbalism with Sage and Whitney Popham. Um, so yeah. I really love their teachings and he's got a great book, um, Evolutionary Herbalism, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, yeah, those are like my two main current teachers, teaching providers, I suppose, right now. But I learn from so many people just from following their work and reading their books that, yeah, it's hard to name them all. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, I then can, all, all I the, can relate. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then all the actual plants and places and spirits of place. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Because the plants teach all by themselves. Yeah. So what, what, what plants are you working with now uh, that are especially exciting to you? Oh, hmm. Wow. <laughs> um, I have so many plants that I am working with at the moment. This time of year is kind of crazy, actually. June, everything is just exploding out of control. <laughs> yeah. So I think the two main plants that I'm focusing on at the moment are the wild roses. Oh, yeah. And the elderflowers. Mm. Those are the two. And I love using those by themselves, but I also love using them together. Mm. I think that's one thing that's really special about, you know, 
the innate intelligence of nature is how things grow together that should be used together oftentimes. Um, so when you harvest your rose and elderflower, they just complement each other so nicely. Yeah. But things do really move quickly. So, you know, I usually have a little handbook and I just go through it and try to remember the things that I need and maybe the things that I have enough of and just move through the seasons that way. It really is like my calendar for the year. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I also wanted to ask you about your um, seasonal cakes. Have you oh, made a seasonal cake for, for this season or what was the last cake that you made? Uh, well, the last one I made, I made a lilac cake, which was back in, I guess it was May. Was that last month or April? I can't even remember, but it does tend to become a blur. I know, <laughs> I know. Um, and then I just made a rose and rhubarb and fur tip cake. Ooh, and that that's amazing. Awesome. That's one of my favorite combinations. Last year in the summer I made, and this was my daughter's suggestion. She's eight now, so she was seven last year. But we had just picked huckleberries. And last year was the most amazing year for huckleberries, just the red ones we were picking. Mm -hmm. They were huge and juicy. Mm -hmm. And she suggested I make a lemon balm and huckleberry cake, Ooh. which I did. And it was definitely a keeper. So I love making those because I don't know, most people really love cake and it makes really great photos and people are kind of drawn to that. So, I mean, I love making them. I love eating them. And I also love using it as a way to kind of pique people's curiosity, like, oh, hey, I didn't know you could make a cake out of that. Well, I now that now they want to try it too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a good way to engage children too. You mentioned your daughter. Um, so I was wondering how you include your children on your herbal and plant path. Well, I guess I'm a single parent um, and they spend, you know, 90% of their time with me. So they kind of, in a way, don't have a choice. They're always out with me with their baskets and backpacks and they just, kids do have a natural affinity for nature. It's just that I think a lot of the time nowadays, kids don't really have that option. It's not really presented to them. But if it is presented to them, there's, I mean, if you can show them all the things that they can eat outside um, and the things that they can make and, I mean, take them on adventures with you and go bushwhacking through the woods looking for a certain plant, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's totally different. It's, you know, you go through the whole week going to school and work and then the weekend comes and you get to go on an adventure. Um, there's no better way to include them. My kids know so much just because they've absorbed all the information. Mm -hmm. They've all got, they've each got their own little mortar and pestle. <laughs> just the other day, um, well, maybe a month ago, the pine trees had so much pollen in their little, it was the female pollen cones. And they went to the school and picked, I don't know how they did it, buckets full of them. They came back and they ground them all up in their mortar and pestles. Then they mixed them with water. And they came in and asked me for coconut milk and stevia, which I gave them. And they somehow strained this golden liquid out 
-hmm. And it tasted like honey. Oh my God. I don't know how they came up with this brilliant idea, but we use that in smoothies for the whole next week. Cool. Yeah. So that's how I teach my kids. They almost teach themselves really. Yeah. Just let them go do what they want to (laughs) do and experiments and play around. Yeah. And, you know, they know what they can't touch and what they can touch. They know to stay away from, you know, the foxgloves in the garden. And I had Daytura last year, so they didn't use the seeds of that for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And they, they know that they can learn quick. They know what a stinging nettle looks like and not to run through the patch of stinging nettles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember being nine and getting really into wild foraging and all the different things I could eat. And it was, it's this, this adventure thing and like finding out these new plants and seeing what I can put in my mouth. (laughs) And, and yeah, it just, I think that really instills that deep love and, uh, connectedness to, to nature and to place. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that's where I, that's where I started from too, is just this really sense, the sense of belonging, like you understand how it works and you know, it's there providing not just food for you, but mystery almost, right? Like you never know what you're going to find when you go out in the woods. What, what's it going to be? We found a secret lake last summer when we were looking for one lake but we found an entirely different lake and it was a super hot day and the labrador tea was in bloom Mm. and the sweet gale was just fully open and it smelled so amazing it reminds me almost of the field of poppies in the wizard of oz where you went Mm -hmm. into it and it was drowsy and there was a humming feeling and the air was thick with this resinous scent and I think all three of us just stopped. We couldn't even move. It was such an amazing discovery. Oh, and so cool. those are the things that we just really remember. And mm. I know I'll remember that. And I hope they'll remember it too. So that's what I love to teach, not only kids, but that's what I'm trying to convey to adult people too, is that it doesn't have to be all about like the grind, you know, mm-hmm. constantly pushing harder and harder to get, I don't know, a new car or new shoes or something. Mm-hmm. Or more garden beds in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> so have you found some success with that? Um, with how, helping adults find that inner love and connectedness to nature? Because it's, you know, it's like easy for someone who was raised out in the woods to love the woods, but maybe for someone who wasn't, is it, it's a little harder. How, um, how, how has that worked out in your, in your experience? Yeah, it is definitely harder. I think, like I was saying with kids, it's a lack of exposure. A lot of kids are playing video games after school and stuff like that, instead of going out and bike riding or something like that. And it's the same with adults. They haven't had that exposure in childhood and maybe they work in an office now and their recreation is, you know, I don't know, going to the mall or something like that. So it definitely for some people is even scary. You know, the thought of going even just on a walk in a public provincial park or something where there's other people, it still feels really unfamiliar to them. So it definitely is hard. And that's why I start really small. 
And for some people, I just recommend they go to their backyard, like a really familiar spot Mm -hmm. and they find a place to sit. I just call it your sit spot and notice things. You don't have to do anything. Just go to that spot every day and notice how your own backyard around you changes with the day or the time of the day or the season. And then you start slowly feeling more comfortable with the things that you notice or the textures of the trees. That's one thing that people I think get surprised by when they're out walking in the woods is that there's actually so much going on. It's not just like a wall of trees that are all the same. There's sounds, there's branches falling, there's animals. You know, if a deer goes bounding through the woods, that can be really scary if you don't know what a deer sounds like when it goes bounding through the woods. Yeah, yeah true. that noise that it makes, the I can't even do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, the thump, thump, thump sound. Everybody yeah. thinks it's a bear or something chasing them. But yeah, so I start slowly and I do talk a lot about it. You know, I have a group that I work in. It's just mostly a free group where I do, you know, weekly teachings. And so I, I talk about these things and I do workshops. So I take people out in the woods on plant walks. And I try to explain this type of thing. Some people definitely get it. And some people, I feel like I'm talking a different language to them. Mm -hmm. And I know they leave the walk still not really understanding, but the the potential is always there. I mean, we all come from the earth. Mm -hmm. We are all ultimately creatures of the earth, even though we, some people may not really understand that. So it's just a remembering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. remembering that we aren't separate from nature even if we think we are we're yeah and well it it, that repeated exposure even if somebody comes to a plant walk and and they don't really take anything consciously they don't remember there's there's like a a hook in their Mm -hmm. mind so the next time they come across that plant there's a glimmer of oh i i i kind of know you yeah you know I think that's, yeah, that's right. And that's how I walk through the woods too. Sometimes, sometimes I have to pull myself away from it almost is that I find that I'm looking at the plants and I'm always trying to be like, you're this one and you're this one and you're this one. And then I have to go, no, okay, let's just enjoy being here. But as a starting point, that's a good place to be is just starting to notice the plants around you and notice which ones are different. And they're not all the same. I think, you know, people go to a park and they, they're so busy looking at their feet, maybe when they walk, thinking about, you know, their to-do list, that they really aren't noticing the different textures and colors and the way the light is reflecting. So there's so many different things to start with, and it can be any one of them. And it's definitely a repetitive process. For sure. Yeah, as, as herbalists, I think we often will kind of stress how we can use a plant and, you know, trying to, like you were saying, get to know every plant and it can take us out of the moment and it can take us out of the experience of just healing with a plant being alongside it. And I think mm-hmm. that's what you're really speaking to. Um, so how do you see nature work on people's health? Like- either through stress or our mood or, or maybe our heart rate or whatever, like what are the things that you see that people benefit from spending time with plants? 
Um, well, hmm. Yeah, you know, it's true that people definitely come from that sort of traditional, conventional, allopathic, I guess, approach. And they want something for, you know, this for that, like something for their headache um, or something for their stress. Definitely stress is one of the top things that people come and talk to me about is stress and anxiety and mood and trouble sleeping. And, you know, I have herbal remedies for sure for all of those things, but it is really important to sort of take it down a few levels and try to figure out, you know, why are people so stressed out? Where is that stress coming from? And maybe before going to, you know, a tincture or a tea, which can still be helpful alongside it, but what is, what else can you do like as a baseline way to manage the stress? And that's why I talk so much about going out and just being in nature. Um, and it's really sort of like when you talk about the concepts that go by multiple names, grounding or earthing or forest bathing. And, you know, there's a science behind that, but there's, like I was saying earlier, it's more than just science. So I guess scientifically, the benefits of grounding or forest bathing is that you're sort of bathing your body in negative ions, which science has shown benefit the human organism, even though they don't really understand exactly how or why. Mm. But, you know, if you're out in the woods, um, these negative ions are generated by the energy of the trees or the plants around you. So there's like molecules and stuff floating around in the air and the energy that these trees generate just from being living beings sort of create enough energy that some of the molecules get rid of an electron and it gets stuck to another molecule, which is then negatively charged. Then it's a negative ion and you breathe those in and you're not only breathing those in, but you're breathing in the smell of the forest and, you know, all of the essential oils that the trees are giving off, which have their own benefits for, you know, being antimicrobial and just enhancing your mood. But then those negatively charged ions do so many things internally when they reach your bloodstream, they, you know, help reduce inflammation and they increase your mood and they somehow interact with your neurotransmitters. So they sort of enhance those feel good hormones and they, they almost regulate your hormones so you can sleep better and your anxiety goes down. And for a lot of people, inflammation is a huge problem. So if your inflammation can be reduced, then that sort of has a snowball effect in making everything better. So that's sort of like the sciencey side of why being with plants is helpful. But then there's also that sort of more intuitive heart sense feeling where you can just like for me plants and the forest and the earth in general is not inanimate inanimate it is a living thing they're all sentient beings and so you can communicate with them but it's on a very subtle level and that's when you can't really explain how you're feeling but if you 
sometimes are drawn to a tree, there's a reason that you're being drawn to that tree. And I encourage people to actually go to the tree. Don't ignore that feeling. We ignore that feeling because we are embarrassed that somebody's going to see us like hugging a tree, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, go hug the tree or sit by it or just go with that feeling and see where it takes you. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. It's cool to hear about like the science behind it and how the negative ions work. And cause I think a lot of us have experienced that feeling of stepping into a forest and everything kind of just drops. Like if you go from a field, sunny and bright to a forest with all these like trees and ferns and everything and moss, like you can feel a difference from those beings and those plants in there. Mm-hmm. And you know, that feeling, you can feel that feeling in so many different places too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the, the negatively charged ions can be created anywhere there is a lot of energy. So it can be um, near rivers, for example, or waterfalls. There's, it, and it's maybe a different feeling because there is a different energy there. And it's kind of the same as, I don't know, when you go into a room of people and you get a funny feeling or you get a really good feeling, everything gives off its own different energetic signature, I suppose. So yeah, there's definitely transitions between field and forest and forest and river, and they're all beneficial in different ways. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about the forests on Vancouver Island. I, in my head, I've never been to Vancouver, but I've been to the Olympic Peninsula, and I assume it's <laughs> similar. But in my head, it's just some of the most gorgeous forests in the world. Is that true? <laughs> well, um, it's, it's sort of true. You know, on Vancouver Island, we have a rather sad situation in that pretty much everything is privately owned. So, you know, it's either privately owned by individuals ah. or, or by, by timber companies. So, you know, most of the land, like the majority of the land mass here is owned by logging companies, basically, that, you know, are given cut blocks. And so what you see from the road maybe looks like trees, but if you do Google Earth, for example, over Vancouver Island, you can just see a patchwork of bald spots, basically. So it's actually a little dreary on Vancouver Island at the moment because we have very, very little actual original forests left. But if you do go to the places where there are still old growth forests, especially like super productive valley bottom old growth forests. Mm. Yeah, it's an amazing feeling. I was lucky enough to be a park ranger in Carmana Walbrand Provincial Park, which is um, one of the few places with, you know, thousand to 2000 year old trees. And yeah, it's, it's impossible to describe the feeling you get from being in a place that is that ancient. It really is. And, you know, I do a lot of work with other environmental organizations and stuff. And I hear so often from people who 
support forestry, which I'm not against logging by any means. I just am against logging of the last remaining old growth, um, is that people talk about forests being like gardens. And when you cut them down, it's just like pulling your carrots out of your garden and then you can plant them again. But what happens to the 2000 years of ecosystem that has happened? You know, there's far more than just trees. There's, there's understory, there's canopy, there's a depth of mushrooms and mycorrhizae and mm-hmm. animals and insects. And where does that all go? It somehow has been left out of the equation. So I know I went on a tangent there from your question. There are amazing forests on Vancouver Island and there's amazing alpine environments too, but there's really not much left. Um, there's not much left. Yeah. That's, that's kind of sad. That is really sad. It's really sad. It and- is. Yeah, it's sad. And my kids, you know, they're so hard to get to these places. My kids haven't even seen an old growth tree. I did take my son a couple months ago to see this little tiny pocket of old growth. And we had to drive down logging roads and hike past machinery to find it. And it was in um, a cut block area owned by a timber company. And they had signs up saying, we understand that this is, you know, a valuable ecosystem and we're not planning to cut it anytime soon. Meanwhile, we are, I mean, obviously the whole surrounding landscape would have been the same. They just some reason set aside this little tiny pocket, which was maybe half an acre in size. Oh no. Oh wow. So yeah, that's the only time I've managed to take him to see anything. Um, Mm. I need a big four wheel drive truck to get out to where the big trees are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and there's also a difference between in like logging practices. It seems like clear cutting is just the worst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like selective logging seems I've seen like, you know, going through the national forests out in in, uh, the United States have been to a lot of one, a lot of different ones. There's, there seems to be a lot of different practices, but the selective forestry logging just seems to make so much more sense. I don't know why everyone doesn't do that, but I don't know. <laughs> do you, do you have yeah. any? You know, yeah. I don't know. I think it really is just, it's just a profit driven industry. And um, there's almost right now a bit of a frenzy, it seems because there are so few big trees left and the value of them has gone up so incredibly that Yeah, they're just trying to get the last of it as fast as they can. And the government somehow seems to be, well, I mean, it does benefit and it subsidizes the industry at the same time. So it's, it's a bit of a puzzle really to figure out because yeah, we have plenty of research to show that selective logging is more sustainable. And yet, it doesn't, it's harder and you don't get the same profit from it, I suppose. But yeah, they just, clear cutting is the thing still right up to, you know, watershed boundaries and right up to the edges of wetlands. And we've all seen that trees blow down, uh, especially when all of a sudden the forest is gone that used to buffer the trees. And then they tip over into that little riparian area which is supposed to be protected. So really what is left behind in a clear cut doesn't really stand for long because it's missing 
the rest of the forest, you know, the roots that it was connected to and the trees buffeted the winds and that type of thing. And the sun, I mean, the, the difference between like part shade and then like the full sun, just baking any mycorrhiza and all the soil bacteria to death Mm. all around this half acre of old growth. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I wonder about that actually a lot because yeah, where I live, there is a lot of clear cuts and I'm, I'm always on the hunt for certain plants. And one area that I go to look for fireweed is in just this giant clear cut area. And as soon as we get there, the temperature goes up a lot. Right. And it, it's like, yes, it's being in the middle of a baking hot desert where there used to be a forest. And I think, well, this has got to be affecting everything. Like, where is everybody's worries about climate change and, I don't know, threatened species and all these things when it seems pretty evident to me that this is not a natural ecosystem and the trees that are be re- being replanted are all the same. Um, there's no biodiversity. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's confusing. (laughs) We hear one thing and we see another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you have any suggestions on how individuals can conserve and protect natural environments around them? Or are there groups that you're working with that people from afar can support to conserve the forests where you live? Well, um, you know, personal practices, I think are again, pretty obvious, but it's really hard for people who have those habits that we talked about, you know, to change those habits. So a big one is really just shopping more locally and not shopping online. Um, There are so many people who just buy things that they don't need. It's that fast fashion, I suppose, right? Fast fashion is not really going anywhere. And most of those companies that make those clothing aren't really environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really does come down to changing your habits, like reusing things, wearing your things until they're worn out, Mm -hmm. walking everywhere. I mean, my kids walk and bike all over the place and I really don't see very many other people in my community walking and biking. Also, communities aren't set up for that. At least where I live, there's no shoulders or sidewalks on any of the roads. So it can be pretty dangerous, especially for kids. Mm -hmm. So we need to, I'm in a group called the Yellow Point Ecological Society. We're just a local nonprofit group. And we've been working on getting like paved shoulders to encourage alternate forms of transportation. And we do lots and lots of, you know, free educational community events. We host speakers who talk about the oceans and microplastics and, you know, pollinators and that type of thing. So there's a lot of things you can do in your own yard. I just encourage people to, you know, try planting native species. And here it gets really hot now in the summer. And it's great to pile things up around the base of your trees. You don't have to waste water. You know, I rake all my leaf litter and stuff around the bottoms of my cedar trees and arbutus trees, and that retains a lot of moisture. So that's good to support your trees life in the hot sun and, you know, save your water. 
Yeah. And also we have a lot of invasive species now, which I know there are benefits to them, but here, I don't know. Do you guys have Scotch broom out there and Himalayan blackberry? On the no. West Coast, yeah. but not out on in New York. Yeah, we've just got Japanese knotweed. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, we, we have Japanese knotweed too, but not as much as the Scotch broom and the Himalayan blackberry. Here, they just create forests, basically, and they really suffocate out all the native plants. So, and English ivy, that's another one. So I work with a lot of groups like we have a council called the Invasive, Invasive Species Council of BC and just get volunteers to come out and help pull things in parks and um, dispose of them appropriately so they don't take over all of the more sensitive ecosystems. So those are just some of the things I do and some of the things that people can also do. It's really just sort of making a conscious effort to change your habits. Yeah, it's like those those habits are just good for so many things. Walking, mm-hmm. more. consuming less energy. Yeah, shopping local. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, for sure. It does. It benefits so many things. And, you know, physical health, too. That's a yeah. great thing about walking. And, you know, don't get a ride on lawnmower. Use a, use a normal lawnmower. They still use some gas, but not as much. And you get to move your body. And that's good for everybody. Yeah, it's a little harder to mow acres and acres. (laughs) It is, it is. Okay, so, you know, fair enough. But if you have a smaller, you know, my yard's half an acre and it's on a hill and I could get a ride on lawnmower like all my neighbors have for their half acres. Mm -hmm. But But a half acre is not very much. No, but still all my neighbors have ride on lawnmowers pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, I see people like in in the towns who have like a quarter of an acre or less. With ride lawn, like, ride lawnmowers. I'm it like, blows what? my mind that like everybody has one, and there's not just like a neighborhood like lawnmower yeah. fund where you uh, you get one per neighborhood and everyone shares it like a different day of the week or whatever. I totally agree with that. I wish that was definitely a thing because there are some things I could use every once in a while, but I'm not going to go and buy one just for a right. week. I usually do try to borrow one. Like sometimes I need a, a pressure washer, so I'll yeah. find. Some- as one and borrow it for a couple days. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in what your experience was as a ranger. Oh, well, <laughs> it was wonderful. I have to say I was a backcountry park ranger. So I got to work kind of out in the middle of nowhere. When I worked in, I worked in two parks. I worked in Carmana Walbran, which is, you know, old growth ecosystem. And then I worked in Strathcona, which is more alpine, subalpine type terrain. Um, And they were both very different, but yeah, it really just involved a lot of hiking, a lot of restoration work, a lot of education and awareness. You know, people will always light fires in the alpine and not understand that they shouldn't do that or dogs people will let their dogs run through you know an alpine meadow and maybe they shouldn't do that so it was yeah I can't really sum it up other than that I would love to still be doing that job but there's not a lot of funding for that type of work it was very seasonal and it's hard to be a seasonal worker um yeah so that's really the reason I left it but you know 
a little side tangent. That is one of the first places, it's not the first, but one of the many, I suppose, places where I had this really intense moment of amazement, I suppose, was I was working in Carmana and I was the only ranger there that week. And I was down in the valley bottom working on a section of boardwalk. It's very wet down there. So we had a lot of boardwalk. And I was removing moss or something like that. And there's a lot of black bears out there. I'd commonly see, you know, 15 to 20 a day kind of a thing. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you just, you get used to it. I mean, it's always a bit alarming sometimes, but I feel like we almost got to know each other. There were certain bears that, you know, always did certain loops. So I'd see them always in the morning and then in the Mm -hmm. afternoon. But this one day I was removing the moss and it was super quiet down there and green and the sun was shining through the tops of the big trees. And I suddenly noticed almost like a change in sound or I can't even describe what it was. And I stopped and stood there and realized that the wind had changed directions. And just the fact that I was tuned in enough to notice like a change in the way that the leaves were sighing almost. And I realized the wind had been coming like up the boardwalk and all of a sudden it was moving down the boardwalk. And I just felt just then that, yeah, you know, we really are part of nature. We just forgot. We just forgot how to notice all these little tiny magical moments. Mm, Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. So do you have any more tips for our listeners who want to cultivate a deeper relationship with nature or help their friends cultivate a deeper relationship with nature? Well, I think spending time in nature is the first step. Actually, you know, writing a list of places you maybe have always wanted to go and going there. And, you know, I have one person I know and she does a wonderful thing where she goes and um, what does she call them? Uh, it's it's kind of like a picnic, but does she call it a napnic or something like that? So she goes to a beautiful spot in the woods with a blanket and she lies down and just takes a nap in the woods. I think that is such a perfect practice. You're mm. not going to do anything. You're just going to go and lie down and, you know, absorb it all and take it all in. I think think that's a great thing to do. And I think another thing that's important is actually interacting with nature. Of course, there are some steps to learn first about, you know, maybe how to interact in a way that doesn't damage a landscape, or if you're harvesting plants for food or for medicine to make sure you're harvesting them safely and at the right time of year, and you're not damaging a whole patch of a plant. But there kind of is this belief that when you go on a walk, you're not supposed to like touch or look at or ever veer off the trail, which really almost perpetuates that feeling that we are not a part of nature. I think it's important to go into nature and like pick a few rose petals and smell them and taste them. And, you know, if you can veer off the path without damaging something, go off the path and see what's actually in the middle of the woods. And when you realize that you can eat things and 
things have different ways of benefiting your body, you feel more responsible for their care. So that's something I like to try to encourage people to do. And those are some of the things I teach, you know, in my workshops is how to interact in a way that is sustainable, but teaches you how to, I don't know, appreciate nature even more. And then that makes people want to save it and protect it and mm. make sure it's there for the rest of their life and their kids' lives. Mm. Yeah. So I'm not going to lie. I'm one of those people who goes off the trail (laughs) (laughs) into the, into the heart of the, into the heart of the woods. But there's always the sneaking like fear that there's going to be a park ranger there (laughs) with a gun. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to get back on the trail. (laughs) Yeah. No, you know, I, I do the same thing and, um, I've been a park ranger, you know, that's an enforcement role. So I definitely understand the, the boundary there, but yeah, I just always do it carefully and mindfully. And if somebody does see me and maybe ask what I'm doing, you know, I have an answer for them. And I try to support those organizations. Like I still work with the parks organizations out here doing different volunteer work. So even though maybe I go off the trail in a provincial park, I'm not doing it carelessly. And I think that's an important thing. And you're probably that same type of person. Maybe you're going to the heart of the forest, but you're not going into the heart of the forest to cut down a bunch of trees and maybe build yourself a little hut or (laughs) something like that. Cause people do do that. You know, they set up a shelter in the middle of the park and then they leave all their tarps and they leave all their garbage. You can also take garbage. That's a great thing to do. I have bags in my backpack and I'm always coming with beer cans and plastic and you know, clean up when you go. So maybe you interact, sure. but you, you remove a whole bunch of garbage at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's definitely, I think that's a great uh, tip for, for people to bring some, bring a bag with you in case you find a, a tarp camp that's been left behind. I've yeah. definitely found those yeah. in my, mm-hmm. my wanderings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I find a lot of those we have. Uh, that's another thing around here. Um, Housing is a problem. It's very expensive here. So there's a lot of people living in tents and mm-hmm. that type of thing. And yeah, I find lots of stuff out in the bushes. Some that I can't even move. You know, I've found the most bizarre things like vacuums and microwaves. And um, wow. I can't take that stuff out. But I carry as much as I can most of the time. And my kids always moan and groan when I start filling up their backpacks. But we do it anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. So, so we can veer off the trail, go into the woods and you, there won't be, (laughs) but we have to do do it carefully. And do you have any like quick tips about, you know, doing that carefully? Like, you know, don't step on plants as much as you, as much as you can. And most of us, you know, know, know the plants that we're going to, that we're going to be visiting with, you know, so, but yeah, cleaning up. Those are all good tips. Are there any others? Hmm. Well, I think it, it really depends. You know, if people are going off the trail because they're looking for a certain plant, like you say, I think most of the time those people have already some knowledge and awareness of the landscape around them. If people are just going off the trail to bash around in the bushes, 
it's a bit harder because maybe they're just exploring. And yeah, I think it's really just about being aware, you know, yeah. try, try to notice what you're walking through. Um, a lot of people definitely don't. I, I go out, you know, I've been on my kids field trips, for example, with school and the kids just go like tearing through the bushes because nobody really has ever told them you know, maybe what's out there. So they might run straight through a wildflower meadow. That is something that actually happens here a lot is we've got a type of ecosystem called the Gary Oak ecosystem. It's very rare now and it's at risk and it's this meadow type ecosystem and the flowers that grow in these meadows in the spring, there's not many left, but people will still go out and plop their blanket in the middle of it for a photo shoot. Oh, right. So, you know, I think it really comes to the parents a lot of the time, like just really being more mindful for one and, and trying to teach kids. I've had to talk to lots of parents on trails that are, you know, peeling bark off of trees or pulling up flowers. And sometimes people are interested in listening, but some people will tell me, oh, well, they're just being kids, you know, Mm. um, but that just really reflects that nobody ever taught them. So yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, that's a hard question to answer because it can be yeah. so many different things, but just, yeah, be more gentle. I think Yeah, people, you, you're not supposed to go in the woods and rip handfuls of ferns out as you go and, you know, play with them, walk mm-hmm. through them and, you know, don't rip yeah. them out. <laughs> yeah. I guess the other thing is getting lost because I, I I have a friend who went into Dolly Sods, which is this amazing um, bald uh, in, in West Virginia in a national forest. And he got lost for three days. Oh, wow. Yeah. So w- one thing I always do is I take my phone with me. I, I'll usually like yeah. turn it off and you can still get on. If I, if I get lost, I can turn, I can turn it back on and there'll still be a blue dot on Google maps where I am. Yeah. Um, navigation is a big thing. Lots of people do get lost out here, especially people who are going, you know, mushroom foraging in the fall and the spring that always happens. Mm. Uh, so yeah, people need to learn how to read maps, even just paper maps and maybe not rely on just their phone, which is great. Like if you have a phone (laughs) or there's lots of other devices you can have like in reach and spot and all these things where you can activate them and it sends out a signal to, you know, the RCMP who can then send it off to search and rescue. So Those are useful things to have. I used to be a volunteer search and rescue person. So I've got that in my background as well. So yeah, I teach my kids how to read maps and we always look at trail maps when we start and talk about where we're going to go and go with somebody. Maybe if you aren't very comfortable in the woods, Mm. Um, I've got a pretty good sense of direction and I can track my way. I remember like plants and trees and features, you know, notice the stream that you're crossing and file that in your memory or leave things. You know, I do do this if we're especially in clear cut areas where it's harder to navigate Mm. is I'll mark things like I'll put a big stick in the ground or I'll pile up a pile of rocks or something so that when I'm backtracking, I can find my things that I've left behind. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. 
I feel like map skills have have gone by the wayside and it's just really crucial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have an old compass and I take those with me. Not so much when I'm doing local foraging, but definitely if I'm going further afield. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. So would you like to tell us a little bit about the courses that you're offering and, and all, the, all your other offerings before we wrap it up? Sure. Um, well, the courses that I'm offering, I only have a couple on my schedule right now for this weekend, actually. I'm doing a little local plant walk on Saturday. Um, and then on Sunday, I'm doing a tincturing workshop because there's certain plants that I love to harvest on the summer solstice, and which also happens to be a Sunday this year, which is nice because I like to get St. John's wort and yarrow and things like calendula and maybe chamomile on that day. Nice. So I take yeah. people out and they learn how to identify plants and we kind of spend some time with the plants and get to know their environment. And it's a whole it's a four hour workshop. So we cover a lot of ground in that four hours from all the things we've talked about, really interacting with the plants and getting to know them and ethical ways to harvest them to different ways of preparing them in medicines. So I do lots of those workshops all summer long, basically. And then people can work with me as a sort of from the nutritionist side of things. So mostly I do one-on-one -on -one three month sessions with people and I can do those in person or online. And then I have a store. It's an actual little physical shop. So people can come in and talk to me in person and look at all the remedies I have on my shelves. And I also have a it's a little group on Facebook. It's like a community group, I suppose, where and that's where I do my teachings and I do like little herbal hot seats on Wednesdays where people can come and ask me their herbal questions. And uh, it's a really fun space that I created just mostly because I really like sharing with people and working with people in more ways than just one-on-one -on -one consultations and just people coming into my shop um, so yeah, there's a little bit of everything going on. <laughs> yeah. You seem to be doing it all. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to focus on just one thing. I, I like everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can relate. I like, the, I like the herbal hot seat idea that keeps you on your toes. And when people ask you something, you know, maybe you're not sure about, you have reason to go like learn more, you know? Yeah, that's one of the best things about this group, actually, is I get so many different questions from people that it really does encourage me and force me to keep learning new things. And people ask me questions all the time that I've never even thought about. Um, so, yeah, it's great for me. And it's it's a small group. It's only a couple hundred people. But, you know, a couple other people join every week. And it's neat. It's people from my area and from all over the place. I've got some people in Maine in the group and yeah. What's it called? It's called Nurture Your Nature Holistically. Cool. It's on, that's a Facebook group. And your website? It is www.champagnehillbotanicals, all is one word, .ca. And is there anything, I'm curious, um, that 
a lot of people tend to ask you over and over in these groups or knowledge that people are hungry for? Well, I think the thing that most people want to know about is what is edible Hmm. in the forest and what is medicinal in the forest, Mm -hmm. which I think is, makes a lot of sense. I mean, that seems like a natural curiosity Mm-hmm. And I, I fulfill that curiosity for people, but as always, I'm trying to encourage people to realize that a plant doesn't have to be edible or medicinal to be beneficial. You yeah. can just appreciate, you can appreciate the plant for being beautiful mm-hmm. or for providing habitat for other animals, or maybe for having a wonderful smell. So those are the things I always, <laughs> those conversations that I have is, you know, on my plant walks, for example, we'll come across a plant and I'll start talking about it. And I find I'm always trying to redeem the plant by telling them, you know, well, it has this and it's, it was used by First Nations for spear shafts and, and for fish hooks. And, but they always are like waiting for me to say, and you can eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's still not worthy Mm -hmm. of appreciation and protection. Right. My herb one of my herb teachers, Seven Song, whenever we had a day that in class, I was all about botany and learning the plants. He had a rule of never talking about what it's used for. It was all about just getting uh, to the plant. And I think, you know, he can relate to that. Yes. I love that. I think that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. That's, that's a big thing. And that's what I, that's one of the things that I try to shift the conversation mm-hmm. from what is it used for to just learning about the plant and, you know, yeah. looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jane, for being on the podcast. We had a great time. Oh, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. You know, I'm going to mention one more thing before yeah. we go that I got to say. Please and do. You, did, you did ask me earlier about environmental movements or organizations that I'm part of. And we were talking about old growth trees mm-hmm. and there is out on Vancouver Island, an area called Fairy Creek, which maybe even uh, you've. Yes. It, I have. It's a big, yeah. So it's a big ongoing battle really to sort of uphold our NDP government that we have here to sort of hold them to what they said they would do. Like they did this big old growth strategic review and have identified that the last remaining 2.7% needs to be protected. And the First Nation groups have requested a deferral on old growth logging and they've drawn a little map to defer just like the watershed, but they're currently logging right up to the edge of the watershed still in, you know, it is a contiguous ecosystem. Mm. And there's a whole bunch of RCMP involvement and it's kind of a crazy situation. So I just thought I would mention that if people were curious and looking for things to support, you can definitely support the people trying to save Fairy Creek from afar. There's, they've got a few good Facebook or Instagram pages, Fairy Creek Blockade and Rainforest Flying Squad. And you can go to those Instagram pages and find out all the ways you can support those people. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Yeah, I've been following that on Instagram and yeah, there's some people doing some great work to save these mm-hmm. trees. Yeah, for sure. So it's pretty important. So thank you for letting me mention that. Absolutely. Any other final thoughts before we wrap up? 
I don't think so. I mean, okay. I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer, but that was good. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you again so much, Jane, um, for being on the show. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Uh, uh, stop recording. Got it. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> <laughs>